So what do you think? You think it's easier to preach a sermon on sex or on politics? <laughs> I will tell you after the service. How about that? At least from my perspective. Um, we're finishing a series today. This is the last sermon in this series called Enjoy Sex, Money, Power, and the Goodness of God. And uh, we're seeing how God's goodness is in just about everything in life. We're talking about how we can find him and how we can enjoy the gifts that God has given to us um, uh, in all of life. And today we're going to talk about politics. Um, and the question that Mike sort of alluded to is how in the world can we see God's goodness in politics? I mean, is there any way to enjoy politics? Doesn't seem like it for so many people. Um, politics creates incredible frustration, doesn't it? I know I get frustrated. There's times where I've literally had to say, I just need to stop watching TV. I need to stop watching the debates. I need to stop watching these interviews because this is so infuriating to me. Um, it creates tension when you talk about politics with other people, doesn't it? Um, especially with people who don't agree with you. It's bad enough talking to people who do agree with you, and yet, what? You're not voting for the person I'm voting for? What is wrong with you? I had so much respect for you, and now, ugh. So disappointed. So disappointed. When I've stepped back and looked, election seasons actually destroy relationships and trust. I mean, how many of you have ever judged someone else because you assumed that there was no good reason for anybody to vote differently from you? Right? I'm guilty of this. Horribly guilty. Um, how many of you have ever vilified a candidate or a position where you kind of knew you disagreed, but you took it to the next level. You didn't just say you thought they were wrong or unwise, but you said, I think they're evil. When you really weren't sure that you could substantiate that claim. And this is what politics does to us. It brings out some of the worst in us. Um, and the question for us is, how can we engage in the political process in a way that sees God's goodness and maybe even has a chance to share it with others? That's our aim today. That's what we're aiming for. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start by looking at a passage from the Bible relatively briefly. We're going to look at this story from 1 Samuel chapter 12, um, and it's going to show us God's example and one of God's representatives as an example of how to enter into the political issues that are incredibly messy. Okay, and so there's some verses in your bulletin if you want to look in there. There's a place there to take notes as well. Um, and I, and I want to, it's in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel was a prophet. Um, he was a, a judge at the time. And in these verses, he's addressing the subject of the king. And the passage that we're going to be looking at today is sort of the end of a political argument that was going on for four chapters. Okay, so the argument started in chapter 8, and it finds its culmination. So that's actually five chapters long. Um, what was happening was that the people of Israel living their lives, doing their thing, they demanded a king. They said, hey, we want a king. All the other nations around us have kings. We see the benefits of a king. We want to have a king. And Samuel, who was the prophet at the time, he said, no, God is your king. You don't need a king. You have a king, and it's God. And the people heard Samuel say that, and the people said, yeah, but, you know, well, we want a king anyways. And so then Samuel replies, and he warns them. He says, you know what? If you get a king, 
This king is going to abuse you. You're going to be abused by the selfishness of a human king. To which the people respond, yeah, we want a king anyways. Everybody else has a king. We respect their kings. We want a king. All right, so, and what we see here is that the people were actually looking for this king to do something for them that God was supposed to do. They were looking to a human ruler to provide something for them that God was supposed to provide. And I think, wow, wait, that's interesting. I've heard that in our day and age. Um, This is a standard argument that Republicans make against Democrats. Republicans tend to say that Democrats look to the government to do things that it can't do or it shouldn't do. But then Democrats have a similar argument, not necessarily about government, but the Democrats turn around and say, Republicans, especially you free market capitalists, you guys look to the invisible hand of free market capitalism to do things that it can't do. And so in our story in the Bible, Samuel then goes to God and he complains. Samuel goes to God and is like, God, you would not believe these people. You wouldn't believe what they're doing. Like, this is so depressing. This is so frustrating. This is so awful. And God says, well, listen, Samuel, you know what? They're actually, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And so God just puts it out there. He says, like, this is what's going on. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. Don't, in a sense, don't take it too personally because it's not even about you. They're rejecting me. But then God does something startling in the story before the verses that we're going to look at. God tells Samuel to give the people a king. He says, yeah, they're wrong. Yes, they're rejecting me by doing this, but give them a king anyways. The people reject God. They want someone else. Samuel confronts them. They reject his warnings. And then God says, yeah, but give them what they want. Give them what they're asking for. And so Samuel then goes back to the people and he tells them that they're going to get a king. Okay, and that's in, it's in verse 13 in the bulletin. Um, basically just says, okay, we're going to give you a king. And then verse 19 tells us what's going to happen next. We're going to jump over this paragraph. I've got a lot of stuff to talk about today, and I want to be conscious of the time. So I'm going to jump over those three verses, and we're going to jump to verse 19, because verse 19 says what happens after Samuel tells them, okay, you're going to get a king. Okay, once they get what they want, they actually feel guilty for what they've done. So let's read this together. It's in the bulletin. We're also going to put it up here on the screen. This is 1 Samuel 12, verses 19 to 23. It says, And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. So God gives them what they want. Samuel says, okay, you're going to get what you want. And now they feel guilty. They come clean. They confess their sin. And actually, sometimes this happens to us. Um, It's when we get the sinful thing that we wanted that we actually feel guilty. And so the people then ask Samuel for help. They say, will you pray for us? Pray for your servants. We're in trouble. And so... um, Most people, when someone says, all right, hey, we were wrong, most people, they get bitter, they get frustrated. When politics doesn't work out their way, they get angry. 
But Samuel actually images God in his response to the people. They say, hey, Samuel, will you pray for us? We actually need help here. We realize the evil thing that we've done. And so then verse 20 goes on to say, Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Man, so Samuel's saying, like, this king, it's empty. He's not going to give you what you want. That relationship that you're pursuing is not going to make you happy. That career, that job, like, the compromises that we make, Samuel's word to them is a word to us. Don't turn aside after empty things. They will not profit or deliver. They are empty without God. But then, verse 22, he goes on, he says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. And so Samuel's response here is he's like, absolutely, I'm going to pray for you. Absolutely, I'm going to help you. Verse 23, he's saying, look, I'm in. I mean, I'm not going anywhere. I'm committed. Even though you did this wrong thing, even though you did this evil thing, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. I'm sticking with you. And I'm going to teach you what is good and what is right. Verse 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your hearts. For consider what great things he's done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So I expected that at the end of this speech, Samuel was going to say, down with the king. You know, if it's sin to want one, then you shouldn't want one. <laughs> and if you got one, we should get rid of it. Let's go back to God being king. But that's not what he does. He doesn't force the people to give up the king. And what he's saying here, what he tells them is, you know what? Life can still work out with God. And here's the key. The key to making life work out is you've got to put God first. Without a king, God is king. With a king, you still need to put God first. So you need to obey God. And this is Samuel's solution. He disagreed with getting a king. And he was right to disagree with getting a king. But Samuel doesn't shun the people. He doesn't guilt them. He rolls up his sleeves and he enters into the messy compromise of politics. That's what he does. He enters in. He rolls up his sleeves and he says, look, I am one of you. Let's figure this out together. It's a non-ideal political situation. And Samuel begins to talk with them about how to turn this non-ideal situation into a situation that can honor God and bring about a blessed life. Samuel is telling them hope is not lost. We can still make the best out of this situation, but we need you and the king to honor God. Okay, so what's the point of the story? The point is this. When we push God away, God stays with us. In this political situation, they pushed God away, literally pushed him away. We don't want you, God. We want our own king. And yet God stays with them. This is God's heart, and this is the heart that God has put into us as his children, as his people 
This is the attitude and the disposition God wants us to have toward others in the conversation of politics, in the season of elections. God wants us to image him and stick with others in political discussions. And then the question for us then is, how are we going to do this? Right? How do we do this? And I want to spend the rest of our time talking about practically how can we follow and do what Samuel does? How can we enter into the messy compromise of politics? How can we encourage people in the church, outside the church? How can we encourage friends, coworkers, colleagues, family members, neighbors? How can we have political discussions with people that might encourage them to get closer to Jesus in politics? I mean, this is huge because we want to be able to bring our Christianity into our politics in a way that would build unity in the church and also bring blessing to our city. So to do this, to do this, you need to understand the other perspective, okay? And you need to foster real dialogue. Okay, this is the beginning process. You need to have real understanding of the other side of the aisle, whatever side the other side is. You need to understand it, and you need to learn how to foster real dialogue. Um, one of my favorite quotes in any book ever from Tim Keller's book, Reason for God, this is what he says. He says, there needs to be understanding, sympathy, and respect for the other side that did not exist before. Then people will rise to the level of disagreement rather than simply denouncing one another. You know the difference between disagreeing and denouncing, right? Denouncing is vilifying, painting someone in the worst possible light, making their argument look stupid and foolish, not trying to understand it at all, but just picking out the pieces as they're talking. Like, you're not even listening, but you're picking out the pieces, and you're going, ooh, if I connect these two dots together, I can make them look stupid. Have you ever done that? I've done this. That's denouncing one another. He wants to let, let us rise at a level of disagreeing. How do we do this? Well, this happens when each side has learned, oh man, like write this on your heart. When each side has learned to represent the other's argument in its strongest and most positive form. Have you ever done that before? Have you ever been in a political conversation with somebody and you made the choice to represent the other side of the disagreement in its strongest and most positive form? Have you ever said, wow, like, here is the best part of what I see on your side? Or, you know what, what you just said didn't make a lot of sense, but my understanding is that what your side believes is actually stronger and better than what even you've just articulated. And I want to respond to that. Represent the other's argument in its strongest and most positive form. Only then is it safe and fair to disagree with it. It's not safe to disagree with the worst presentations of the other side's arguments. That makes people who are unintelligent, that makes people who are insensitive, that makes people who actually don't understand the other side or who don't care what the other side actually thinks, they just want enough information to make them look stupid. The hard part is that there are evangelists in our culture. There are evangelists in our country that are... I think, truly hell-bent to teach you not to do this, to teach you to present your opponent's arguments in their worst and weakest light. They're called talk show hosts. 
But this is a calling for us because Tim says that achieves civility in a pluralistic society, which is no small thing. When we can learn to have these sorts of civil conversations about politics, man, that is no small thing. I've been in environments where if you weren't voting Democrat, then you probably aren't a real Christian. I've been in environments where if you're not voting Republican, you're not a real Christian. This is ridiculous. Denouncing the other side doesn't help, but understanding the other side does. And so you need to understand other perspectives and foster real dialogue. And then you need to understand that both Democrats and Republicans, their party policies on both sides of the aisle actually do reflect aspects of God's kingdom. There are elements on both sides of the aisle that are expressions of what God wants for the world, okay? And so just ask yourself, when you think about the problems in our nation, what's broken? Are people broken or is society broken? It's both, right? Individual people are broken, society's also broken. Republican policies tend to focus on individuals. Democratic policies tend to focus on society. And God cares about both. He cares about both. Um, I want to show you a grid that we're going to look at here. Um, we've got Democrats on the left. We have Republicans on the right, okay, with a line down the center. Very thin line, intentionally drawn that way. There's also a line that separates top and bottom. There is good on both sides. There's bad on both sides. I want to walk through this because this is key for us to get to a place where we can treat other people in political discourse the way that God treats them and the way that Samuel treats them. Okay, and so I want to look at these and see how these two parties match up. Now, listen, if you're a third-party person, then chances are you're already on the road to a Jesus-honoring compromise. And we're going to look at the good and the bad on both sides. So first, let's look at the good. Um, what I'm about to do is incredibly simplistic, okay, because we don't have a whole lot of time. I would love to go deeper with you on any of the subject matter, but please don't hold me responsible for being simplistic because I just admitted I'm going to be simplistic. So that criticism doesn't work because I named it, right? I'm going to preach a really bad sermon today. Therefore, if you tell me, never mind this. Um, no, so this is going to be simplistic, but I, what I want you to do is I want you to, I want you to follow the train of thinking, okay? And I want to teach you how to think about politics in a different way. And so first, on the left, something that's good about Democrats is that they focus on social justice, okay? And on the right, Republicans, they focus on individual rights. This tends to be the focus of a lot of their policies. On the Democratic side, if you think about it in terms of our vision, right? Our vision as a church, think about this. Our vision as a church is we, want, we see a renewed city through a renewed people to the glory of God. And we feel like that's a vision that reflects God's heart for bringing his kingdom from heaven to earth so his will is done here on earth as it is in heaven. And so this means that democratic policies tend to focus on a renewed city, whereas republican policies tend to focus on renewed people. On the democratic side, there's a principle that you have a responsibility first and foremost to the community from which you come. Whereas on the republican side, you're 
primary responsibility is to yourself and your family first. Which of these things reflect God's heart? They both do. In a book called Ministry of Mercy, Tim Keller said this. He said, you know, the left expects a citizen to be held legally accountable for his use of wealth, but totally autonomous in other areas such as sexual morality. The right expects a citizen to be held legally accountable in the areas of personal morality, but totally autonomous in the use of his wealth. The North American idol of radical individualism lies beneath both ideologies. Ooh, that's good. (laughs) That's good. So on the left side of the aisle, there is an implicit and explicit trust in big government. Whereas on the right... There's a trust in big business. So for Democrats, they tend to think that more government is needed to protect the rights of individual people so that they're not abused by the powerful in our society. Um, Democrats trust that the government will do what's right. On the other side, Republicans tend, again, tend, they tend to say that, you know what, we think that it's better for businesses to have more freedom, to be able to grow larger, to be unrestricted in terms of taxing and legislation. Um, And they trust that big businesses will do what's right. Both of these are problematic, right? Both of these are problematic because (laughs) the government is full of people who are sinful, selfish, prone to wander away from doing what's best for others. And so are the people in big business. On the left, uh, the the focus tends to say that government ought to be gracious. On the right, the tendency of policies is to focus on the fact that people should be responsible. Um, In the Christian church, so not just Republicans and Democrats, but in the Christian church, Democrat Christians tend to believe that the kingdom of God is earthly. It's this worldly. We want to see the kingdom come here on earth. Whereas Republican Christians tend to believe that, well, the kingdom of God is actually heavenly. It's otherworldly. And again, I ask, who's right? They're both right. The vision of the Bible is for heaven and earth to come together, for there to be a new heaven and a new earth where where, where, where up and down, where, where above and below meet together and become one in a glorified, amazing, renewed way. And so, again, this is just a very simplistic introduction to what is good on both on both sides. Even though trusting big government, trusting big business, some people would say, well, no, no, that's not good, and... So that could go down below too. But then I also want you to understand that both Republicans and Democrats have weaknesses in their policies. Okay, now I know that all of you know that already, but I want you to know that your side also has weaknesses. Okay, it's not just the other side that has weaknesses. And so let's talk about this. So Democratic policies can be abused by those who don't want to work. Okay, And then on the Republican side, Republican policies can be abused by those who don't want to share. Both sets of policies can be abused and are abused. Um, 
With democratic policies, large government is inefficient. Let's talk about this just for a second. Um, programs are not run effectively or efficiently. Programs lack real accountability. I mean, the larger the system, the more subject to abuse it can be, both by people who receive the benefits, but also by the people who work for the system. Um, government is so big in part because of all of the layers that need to be added in to hold the government accountable to do what's right. Um, in what could potentially be a very ignorant statement that I'm about to make, whenever I see road work being done, I tend to see like one, maybe two people doing the work and then one person standing watching them doing the work and then another person watching the person watching the people doing the work. And I'm not trying to make fun, but I really believe that what's happened here is that the number of lawsuits that have happened because this guy wasn't there caused this guy to be there. And then when this guy failed to do his job, they had to add this guy over here or this gal over here. And this is sort of the crazy broken system that we're a part of that's incredibly inefficient and causes the size of government and the cost of government to balloon incredibly. And it's super frustrating because we think, man, why does it cost so much money for the government to get stuff done? Well, this is partly why. And it's not unconnected with the legal system that can, that por a portion of which that can go crazy in terms of, of suing people. Um, but if you don't have people of character working for the government, then the government can become as corrupt as the big businesses that the Democrats criticize. Businesses also struggle to stay efficient as they get bigger. As companies get bigger and bigger and bigger, they wrestle with layers of management. And you have people that are more and more disconnected from the actual product or the service that the company's offering. And it can get top heavy and it can collapse. The problem is that with government, it is so much larger than even the biggest businesses. Um, but it's also not required to turn a profit. And so there's not a sense of like fiscal accountability where if you don't come in under budget or if you don't make something, you know, if you spend more than you have, well, you can just raise taxes. And that's, again, that's simplistic, but this is part of the problem with the inefficiency of large government. But on the other side, with Republican policies, um, a small government tends to leave the poor behind. Okay, there are lots and lots of people who fall through the cracks and are severely disadvantaged by a smaller government. Um, John Perkins was uh, a sharecropper who began the Christian Community Development Association that encourages Christians to follow Jesus into the most depressed areas of cities and to work for their renewal. Um, and he has this to say. He said, free enterprise is handicapped by a serious flaw, and that flaw is man's greed. Both biblical history and American history remind us repeatedly that greedy men will use economic freedom to exploit others, to profit at the expense of others. Employers pay employees as little as possible in order to maximize their own profits rather than treating their employees' economic interest as being as important as their own, or to be more thoroughly Christian, more important than their own. Advertisers create markets for products which no one needs, not from a motive of servanthood, but out of greed, pure and simple. 
businesses measure their success primarily by their financial profits, not by how well they glorify God and serve people. What a far cry we are from a truly Christian economy. I think he has a point there. Now, the best Republicans don't hide the evils of free market capitalism. Okay, and this is crucial. The best Republicans simply say, look, this is the best option that we have because the alternatives to free market capitalism are worse than the evils that free market capitalism uh, produces. Here's the problem. That statement that the alternatives are worse, that's an opinion that needs to be established by facts. Right? You can say it. It doesn't make it so. You've got to prove it with facts. You have to prove that the economy gets bigger and benefits everyone when regulations are reduced and when the size of government is shrunk. And I'm not saying you can't prove it. I'm just saying you need to be able to prove it in order to make a statement like that. It's, and, and I would say it's not airtight. But this kind of honesty where... Um, about one's own strengths and one's own weaknesses is absolutely vital, okay? Because too many people are honest about the strengths of their side and the evils only of the other side, okay? And I would say, too, that uh, there's a lot of talk, like when you think about the, the left and the right in this, there's a lot of talk from people on the Republican side who have made arguments that the most important issue in the coming election is the appointing of new Supreme Court justices, okay? And again, my hope is that the best Republicans that would argue about this, like Democrats would say, like, we, maybe we support the justices that Hillary Clinton that we know she's going to appoint. Maybe we wouldn't support those justices. Um, but on the Republican side, these are the folks that tend to say this is the biggest issue and why we need to vote for the Republican candidate, um, the best Republicans would have to admit that they actually don't know for sure what kind of justices Donald Trump would appoint. I mean, they could say what kind of justices he has said he'll appoint, but nobody knows what Donald Trump will or won't do. We just don't know. Now, Someone could say, well, I would rather vote in a way that would bank on the uncertainty of what could be good than the certainty of what I believe wouldn't be good. And that's a fair statement. But that's a far different statement, a far more humble statement than to simply say, this is an airtight case, you're an idiot if you don't vote Republican because of Hillary Clinton's Supreme Court nominations. And so... What's the point of this? Well, as you gain understanding, I want you to get good at admitting your party's weaknesses. I want you to become an expert at that. Become an expert at what your party doesn't do well. Um, because I think the goal for, my goal for the nation, my goal for our church, my goal for every one of you is that we would have both Democrat and Republican Christians who are quick to admit the faults of their own party and who are able to actually point out the good on the other side. That's what we want. This is really the third way of Jesus in politics. Quick to admit your faults. Quick to be able to take the political log out of your own eye before you go after the, the political speck 
in the eye of someone else. Um, I mean, I want our church to be filled with people who are on both sides of the aisle. Both parties, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, need Christians who are honest and who are understanding. We might not change the political landscape of our nation, but you will change the tenor of political conversations that you have with your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, and you can do it in the name of Jesus. And that's a big deal. We need Democrats and Republicans who are committed to this kind of dialogue. There's one other thing that we need. Um, we need all of us to be committed to one other thing, and that's this. We need to all be committed to the reality that politics isn't the gospel. Okay? I care about this stuff. I care about some of the nitty-gritty and the minutiae. I want us to be intelligently talking about these things, but we can never forget that politics is not the gospel. No political party, no political policy can save our nation. Only the gospel can. Okay, only the gospel can. Um, I read something by Doug Wilson this week who um, is incredibly witty, very insightful, very extreme in some ways, but he said this. He said, for the political activists, we must confront the realization that there is no political solution for the challenge that we face. There is no political solution for what is wrong with our country. Okay, laws won't do it. But I don't say this as a prelude to an exhortation to give up. No, we must not give up. We were told to teach all the nations how to obey every word that Jesus left to us. But before that can happen, before we can teach people what Jesus taught us to teach them, we need to baptize them. And before that can happen, people aren't ready to be baptized without a spirit-anointed proclamation of the gospel, such that the nation turns in mass and bows down before the Lord in true humility. There is no other way to save our nation, no salvation without a Savior, and there is only one Savior, and his name is... Jesus. Man. I had this really awful experience this week. Um, I walked from the office here upstairs to Smart and Final because we were running low on Diet Dr. Pepper. <laughs> and they have it there, and it's usually a pretty good price. And so I went over there, and, uh, and lo and behold, it was at a price I've never seen it before. It was $2.47, I think, for a 12, for a case, a 12. I'm like, dang, I was trying to do the math in my head, like, what is that per can? I was getting all excited. I'm like, this is great. This is perfect. And then it has a little thing. It says, oh, you need to buy $25 in other groceries to qualify for this. I'm like, all right, okay. So then I'm thinking, what should I buy? And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll buy a big, one of those boxes of frozen hamburger patties, you know, like, like about this big, you know, nice size. So I got that, it was like 22 bucks, and a pack of gum got me over the 25. I'm like, great. So then I go back over there, and I, and I grab a couple cases, and then I see there's another thing on the, on, the, on the sale thing. It said, you must buy five. And I could stand before you and say, hi, I'm Stephen. I'm addicted to Diet Dr. Pepper at this point. <laughs> But actually, the, the truer addiction in my life is that I'm Stephen Cooper, and I am an addict for, and a sucker for, the good deal. 
And so it took me like 15 seconds to go, well, of course I'm going to buy five. Eventually we'll drink them. <laughs> and so there I was. So I put all the five in, in my cart, right? And I pushed the cart up, check out. Lady was really nice. Um, and as I was checking out, I realized... I walked here. <laughs> Ma'am, could I have some extra bags? Um, sure, yeah, no problem. How many do you want? Um, how many can you give me? She goes, well, what do you need? I was like, well, I, I just walked here from my office. And she goes, oh, you're going to have to take two trips. Here, here, let me, let me redo your receipt. And uh, I'll give you some of the stuff now. You can come back for the rest of the stuff. You know, just come back later. We'll hold it for you. No problem. No, I think I can make it. <laughs> and she goes, sir, you're not going to make it. I'm like, no, 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 no. I can do this. Like, come on. I can, you know, and I'm, I'm like, and I'm racing in my head. Okay, I think I can fit two cases in a bag. And if I double bag it, then total I can grab. And, you know, and I've, I've carried stuff from the driveway in crazy ways, like on my arms and shoulders and one time on my knee, and I was like walking in like this, you know, and like, I can do this. And so I'm like, no, no, I'm good. And she just, okay. And she gives me like this giant stack of bags, you know, and so she's like, you're going to need these. So I'm like, cool. So I, I push the cart out, and, I, and I'm next to the trash can, like trying to figure this out. And I realized, like, I put two cases in each bag, and I doubled the bag, and I felt so responsible because I was like, I could probably just make it. I'm not going that far, even with a single bag, but I'm like, I better, I better double bag this. And so, um, so I realized after putting two cases in a bag that you actually can't reach around to get the handles to close <laughs> far enough where you can like get your hand in there, right? So I'm like, oh no, what am I going to do? Um, and then this guy walks by and he looks at me and he goes, you try to carry all that? I'm like, yeah. And he goes, you need a belt. Like, That's a good idea, actually, if I had a belt. Oh my goodness, wait a second, literally for the first day in probably five years, I am wearing a belt today with my jeans. <laughs> literally, it's been five years since I've worn a belt. This has to be a sign from God <laughs> that he would give me a belt on this day and send this guy, this must be an angel. I was like looking, did he glow? Was he really there? I saw him, he was shopping, so it wasn't an angel. But um, And so I take my belt off, and I loop it through, and then I realize, oh, man, wait, wait, I can't even get the hamburger patty box in a bag because it's too big, and it doesn't close either. And I'm like, oh, come on. And so, but I kind of figured out a way to loop it all through and got it all done. And, um, and, so, and so there they all are, and I strapped up my belt, you know, and picked it up. I'm like, hey, this works. Put it back over my shoulder. I'm a boss. And I start walking, and I'm walking through, and I'm feeling it's kind of bumpy, so I'm trying to walk slowly, you know, and, and here I go, and I get to the street, I'm like, this is going to be awesome, I mean, I have to go like a block, right, it's not that far, and so here I go, and I cro I'm crossing the street, I look for traffic, no traffic, I cross the street, and all of a sudden, and I turn around, and there are like Diet Dr. Pepper cans rolling in both directions, on the street, three of them have come open and been, and been burst and are spewing out foam in all these different directions. And I'm like, what happened? And I grab my, I look, I pull my belt around the front and the belt strap like pulled out of the buckle because it's not designed to carry 
75 pounds worth of groceries, which I didn't know. Um, and so there I am, and I'm like, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do, because I'm now across the street from the entrance of Smart and Final. I'm like, I'm almost halfway, but, and the bags are all ripped and torn, because all the cans came, you know. And so I'm just, I'm bending down going, well, at least I have to clean this up. And so I'm bending down, I'm starting to clean up, and I see these two police officers coming up on bikes. They're riding bikes, right? They're coming north on, uh, on, on 15th, and they're coming, and they get close, and I make eye contact, and the guy goes, hey, how you doing? And just rode on by. <laughs> really? And so I ended up walking back to Smart Final. I made a little nice pile of my stuff. I walked back to Smart and Final, and I walked back to the lady, and she just laughed at me. She just laughed at me. And I said, can I have some more bags, please? <laughs> she like, grabbed the whole thing off and handed it to me. And so I went back, and I triple-bagged all the stuff. Um, I took my broken belt now and figured out how to use it so that I wasn't actually leaning on the belt buckle because I was like torn off and wasn't going to work anymore. And I was able to like pick it up. And because it was all triple bag now, there was some strength there. And now I'm like, again, I'm like chugging across um, G Street. And, and the climax of the story, <laughs> this is the, my favorite part of the story, is that, because it gets better, um, <laughs> is that there were some, um, some of our neighbors were on the sidewalk on both sides, folks that don't have homes. And their stuff was sprawled everywhere on both sides of the sidewalk. And I'm walking up, and I'm just looking at them and smiling. And uh, two guys and a gal. And the gal looks at me, and she goes, you're carrying a lot of stuff. <laughs> and she's, you know, and I'm looking. I'm like, yeah, this is really stupid <laughs> on my part. And so she just wished me luck. And I, made it, I finally did make it back. Um, I was incredibly sweaty. If you want some Diet Dr. Pepper, there's five cases of it upstairs. <laughs> Afterwards, we can break it out. Um, why am I telling you this story? Because I think that what I did with, that plastic, with those plastic bags, what I did with my belt, um, this is what we do with politics when we think it can save us and our country. We are putting all of our eggs in bags that are not strong enough to hold them. We are using straps and belts that just are not designed. They're just not strong enough. Politics cannot rescue us. Politics cannot save us. And so we just can't put our hope in our political perspective, our political policies to change our country. Um, man, this is, we just, we have to own this. When we do this, when you get, when I get emotionally distraught, because of the political landscape of our country, then we might be in that moment putting too much of our hope into a bag that just can't be strong enough to hold on to it. And so I want to encourage all of us that when our emotions are getting involved, that's an indication that we're probably too invested and we're hoping too much in the political system. Instead, what God wants us to do is God wants us as Christians to enter into these situations, enter into these discussions, and to do it in a way where we can be like Samuel, 
like God himself, who's willing to roll up his sleeves and say, look, how can we make this as good as it could be? Because when we do that, then we actually look like God. Then we actually look like Samuel. And I would say, too, that's when we actually we look like Jesus. Because when we've failed, when the mess of our lives is sprawled across 15th Street, um, when we've even gone to the political world and used the political process to lie, to divide, to vilify other people, God came near in Jesus to turn everything around. That Jesus actually came and offered his life. He entered into the mess, not just of our political world, although he got crushed by the political machine of his day, but Jesus enters into our actual sin and died for our sins. In Jesus, we see that God has actually provided a human king. The tension gets resolved in Jesus, where we actually get a king who's both human and divine. Because in Jesus' death, he brings us back to God, and in his resurrection, Jesus sends us forth to bring new understanding and forgiveness and healthy dialogue to our political conversations. It's when you believe in him and you can see him entering into the mess of your life that you'll be motivated with love and understanding to enter into the political process and have conversations that would promote unity in the midst of the diversity of our own city and even our own church. And so let me just give you a couple of things that you can do to start this process. First, how to practice, just be humble. You should be able to say, look, here are my political views, and just so you know, I have problems with both sides of the aisle. Here's what's wrong with my side. Here's what's good on the other side, but this is what I think overall. Just be humble about it. This is convicting to me. You need to pray at least as much as you criticize. Okay? If you're going to criticize, you need to pray for the person you're criticizing. We've done that here in our church. We've prayed for both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. We've prayed wider than that. Um, if you're going to criticize, you've got to pray. You have to ask and beg God to bring healing and hope um, and, and understanding to our nation and even to the candidates themselves. And then practice this kind of dialogue at a proposition party this fall. So this fall, we're going to have proposition parties where throughout our church, we're going to get together and look at the issues on the ballots to try to help each other to vote responsibly, intelligently, in a God-honoring way that promotes this kind of understanding dialogue. So jump into one of those as they come this fall. You'll hear more information about that even next week. And then last, share with other people. Don't try to convince them. Don't take on the burden of having to convince somebody else to change their political views. Just share with them what you believe. Um, some of what you believe will be because of Jesus and it will be foolishness to them. Um, but don't feel like you have to convince anybody else. But do your best to articulate what you believe um, and how Jesus sort of promotes this third way in politics. Admit the bad on your side, the good on the other side. Um, this is that third way. And I don't know if you're going to, some of you may enjoy that process of being the sort of third way politics kind of Christian. Some of you may enjoy that, but we can definitely see God's goodness on both sides of the aisle in that way. The hope is, the hope is 
that you as a Christian, whatever side of the aisle that you're on, or if you're on a different side entirely, or if you just think all the sides are messed up and jacked, um, what we need are Christians who see the brokenness of their own side and the good on the other side. Um, that's what we're aiming for. That's what we want. That's what we need each other to help us articulate. Because if our church and our city were filled with these kinds of people, oh, man, like, I'm amazed to think at what would be possible for us. So let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for leading us in this way. Jesus, thank you that your kingdom is wider than either party, um, that your gospel reaches into the depths of our own brokenness and misery, and that your love for us touches us in a tangible way that makes us want to love others. We confess our sin, Jesus. We have not conducted ourselves politically in this way, and we need your forgiveness. Please show us more. Help us to have good dialogue with people that we disagree with so that we can learn why they think what they think. And we pray, Lord, that, that you would lead and renew us so that we might renew others. And we pray this in your name. Amen.